Hey guys, welcome to episode 64, part one of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So before we start, we just wanted to remind everyone that if you like what you hear, you should subscribe. And if you haven't already, you should rate and review the podcast. We always love hearing what you guys have to say. Also, if you want more True Crime Couple, you can join our Patreon page to get extra content. One bonus episode a month for everyone that donates $1 to $2 and 2 for those who donate 5 and above. We've already released our two bonus episodes for November already. The first is an episode on a tragic murder-suicide that took place at Harvard University. And the second episode is a tragic case of a 26-year-old woman who was murdered and her murderer is using the rough sex defense. And that's a pretty graphic episode, so it was rough for us to get through. So congratulations to you guys when you do Patreons. <laughs> and of course, we have our backlogs from our past episodes. So if you join today, you're going to get 15 episodes of content, which is pretty exciting. And if you want to become a Patreon, you can join patreon.com slash true crime couple. And we would appreciate anything that you guys could donate to us. But if that's not something that you're interested in doing, one of the best things you could do for us is just spread the word of the podcast. Getting extra listeners is amazing and being able to reach a larger audience would totally help us out. So we would appreciate anything you could do. And we know Thanksgiving has passed, so we weren't really able to wish you this before Thanksgiving, but we wanted to wish our listeners a happy Thanksgiving and and let you guys know that there's nobody we're more thankful for than our listeners. Couldn't have said it better. Yes, you guys are great, and um, we just we love you. All right, you ready to get into the John? You love them a lot. <laughs> I do, I do. Honestly, it's like it's the best. Honestly, I go, I go on my phone. I I look at Instagram. I I look on on the iTunes and the comments yeah. and everything. And you guys are just great. It makes me feel good. It is know? nice. It's so fun to interact with our fans, and and we've made like some lifelong friends with our fans. So yeah. we do really appreciate a little that. True crime family here. Yes. All right, so right off the bat, we want to make clear that this is a two-part series, and that's because there's way too much to fit into one episode. And we want to acknowledge our most used source for both episodes, and that would be John Glatt's book, Depraved. It was so amazing, and it was super detailed. The way Glatt can tell a story is amazing, and he's one of my favorite true crime writers. But of course, we don't give away every single detail in the book because Reading his book is something that you need to experience for yourself. So if you're really interested in this case, you should give Glatt's book a read and all of his other true crime books because they're amazing and the cases he picks are so, so interesting. Okay, so today we have for you our first serial killer. Can you believe that? It's pretty exciting. This is our first one. Yeah, I've always kind of avoided doing serial killers because you got to do the case justice, right? There's and ju- usually we take an hour to do justice for one victim. So you got to think about paying homage to so many victims all at once. You don't want to just kind of like immortalize this serial killer. You want to respect the victims. So it's it's hard to do and there's a, a lot that goes into it and I don't know, I guess we're finally ready to take it on. We're ready. We're here. Yes. <laughs> So the serial killer we're going to be talking about is John Edward Robinson. Robinson is known for committing many crimes. He was a con man 
whose games went from forgery and embezzlement and advanced into prostitution rings where women who worked for him were drugged and forced to participate in SM sex cult. Yeah, that escalated pretty quickly. But more than anything, John Edward Robinson is known as the Internet's first serial killer. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Our story is going to pick up in Cicero, Illinois, the birthplace of John Edward Robinson who was born on December 27, 1943, the third of what would be five children. His mother, a homemaker, his father, a machinist, the family was deeply embroiled in the blue-collar culture that was integrated into the Chicago suburbs of mid-century America. Later in life, Robinson is going to say that his father was a binge drinker who lazily left the disciplinary work up to his mother. However, the reality of Robinson's childhood seems very different than his illusion of it. Cicero was a strange place to bring up a child. Although there was a strong understanding of working hard for the things that you had, there was also a strong criminal aspect to the town. Cicero is synonymous with the likes of Al Capone and had been the scene of many gangland shootings and massacres. At the center of town was also a racetrack where betting and gambling were a common occurrence. One couldn't even look to their elected officials for a reprieve, as the town was known for its political corruption and bribery scandals. To take his son away from the bad direction the town could lead a young boy in, Robinson's father encouraged him to join the Boy Scouts, with which he was still strongly affiliated. The Boy Scouts were very popular, especially in the poorer neighborhoods, as those kids were able to do things with the scouts that their families never would be able to afford on their own, like swimming, camping, and going on mini vacations. Robinson joined the Boy Scouts at the age of 12. Those who were in the same troop as him said that he only had a few friends and that he didn't mind it because he was more of a loner type. He also isolated himself through his actions. Robinson knew he was talented when it came to the scouts, and he made sure to let others know he was superior to them. That's like the worst kind of person to have to deal with. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. The superiority extended early on in his academics when he was accepted into the Quigley Preparatory Preparatory Seminary. Robinson had expressed that he wanted to be a priest. Quigley was known throughout the country as being the best for those aspiring to enter into priesthood. The year he entered the school was a big one for him, as this is when he also became an Eagle Scout. As an Eagle Scout, he sang for the Queen with a group of scouts chosen in 1957. Interestingly enough, when Robinson made the cover of the Chicago Tribune for his trip to England, he shared the page with infamous Ed Gein, who was caught that year. Really? Isn't that interesting? So like a future serial killer and... Ed Gein, who, I mean, he was more just strange than he was a serial... He really, he killed one person, but, like, he did other weird stuff. We would love to cover Ed Gein one day. But, like, them, how the irony in that. 
That is crazy, right? Also, I think it's really interesting that he, at such an early age, is going to choose priesthood for his career. Like at 14 years old, were you thinking, I want to be a priest? No, but we have to also remember the time and how things are a little little different than today. I mean, for some, unfortunately, like religion isn't as on the, on the hierarchy as it used to be. That's true. 1957 religion yeah. was still extremely prevalent in, in like American culture. Not to mention the fact that we're more of a melting pot today than we were back then. I feel like that's true, especially in middle America right, you where have he's a lot, growing up. Right. You have a lot of different religions now. So I think though more for more than him wanting to become a priest for religious purposes, I think it's more of a power thing. Um, yeah, I would think it would be power, but I also think there's, um, safety in that as well. And what I mean by that is think about it. When you become a priest, your food's taken care of, your shelter's taken care of, your expenses and your health care is taken care of. So you, really you're, you're just then out for profit yourself. I mean, I guess that. so. Like you're, you know, you're completely taken care of, so you don't have a worry in the world. What we're going to learn about Robinson is that everything in his life becomes a scheme. Like, he's always looking to see how he could profit. And I think that's a really good point because now you're you're saying, like, now those expenses have been paid for and now you're in a position of power. So now how can I make more money right. from this? exactly. So while Robinson was experiencing many successes as a scout, he wasn't as a student. His teachers described him as being an average student. They said his success was an illusion based on his manipulation of the adults around him. I've known students to be that way, too, to be like of average intelligence, but they're highly decorated and awarded students because of their personalities. Now, this could either be because, like they're saying of him, manipulation or someone just making up for their shortcomings with their good personality. Hey, I could relate to that. I mean, that was me 100% as a kid. Terrible in school, but a personality that was one of a kind. So, yeah, you don't want to see those kids yeah. now. I mean, I'm not, I'm not uh, stroking myself over here, but uh, well, hopefully was... not. No, <laughs> not like that. You know, whatever. You know what I mean? It's talking about my ego. Anyway, no, but it's true. That's what I was always told, and my mom was always told. So, what are you gonna do? Right, and some kids do have that, but some kids do it in ways like, like you did, with your personality in a good way, versus him trying to be a little bit more manipulative, right, and dark about it. I feel like it's also um, his way of trying to see if he could push the envelope and see what he can or cannot get away with. Oh, yeah, with. he's practicing his skills. Right, exactly. Now, of course, that's not going to fly at a seminary school. So Robinson is going to leave Quigley after one year and begin attending his local public high school. After high school, he went on to Morton Community College, where he studied to become an x-ray technician. This was a financial stretch for his parents, but his father had high hopes for his middle child. And that doesn't really seem like a binge drinker. Like, I think he was completely making up a rough childhood for sympathy later on in life. Once he began his training in the medical field, Robinson immediately felt like he needed to change career paths. He had illusions of grandeur about himself. And that's why he initially wanted to become a priest, right? To work at the Vatican and to, to be larger than life in a way. And... I think that it was the same thing with an x-ray technician. Like, while he's studying to be an x-ray technician, he's seeing doctors. So he would never want to put himself in a position of inferiority. So he's saying, I should be a doctor. 
not an x-ray technician. So again, he wants to change his field. But the reality was Robinson was barely cutting it as an x-ray technician. So he is going to drop out of Morton Community College, but still has these dreams and delusions of becoming a doctor eventually. It's very strange. No, it is. Because I, for most people, I feel like everyone knows what their ceiling is at a certain age. And I feel like, you know, you know if you can or cannot make the cut. Right. And I know you're going to, you're saying to yourselves, well, how can you drop out of community college but still want to be a doctor? That doesn't really make sense. Well, we can't forget that Robinson's teachers said he was really good at manipulation as a child. And of course, that's only going to get, he's only going to make his skills better as an adult. And he applied to many hospitals for various positions, lying about his qualifications on every job application he found. Obviously, lying on job applications is a lot easier in the 1960s than it would be today in 2019. Absolutely. You would never get away with that now. (laughs) So he wound up working for the bookkeeping department of a large Chicago hospital at first. And I guess initially what he wanted to do was work his way into hospitals any way he could. While working there, at 21 years old, he meets an attractive 20-year-old blonde named Nancy Jo Lynch. He proposed to her on their second date, and although she had some apprehension, she said yes. The second date. Could you imagine? I mean, that's a lot. Yeah, we went to the movies. (laughs) We did. That is not a massive commitment for our entire future. I mean, that's just so ballsy. I mean, like what you're really trying to say is, oh, I know this person so well already in two dates. That I'm just going to propose. Or just like, I'm so good that she's going to say yes. That too. So, like we said, she had some apprehension, but she did say yes to him, and she very quickly became pregnant with his first child. The honeymoon phase did not last very long for the Robinsons. The hospital realized that there was a significant amount of money missing from their funds. And when they confronted Robinson about it, he admitted to stealing the money. His boss, feeling bad that he had a pregnant wife at home, told him that he would not call the police if he agreed to pay back the money. And Robinson's going to agree. But ashamed, he and his wife, they got to leave the city. That's crazy. Oh, my God. I mean, like, I would never do that. I would never, ever, like, th- like lose my job over something like that. Thanks, John. I appreciate the stability. I mean, mean, no, I'm just saying. (laughs) Well, it's true. I mean, like, you wouldn't do it. No way. No way. I'm the most nervous person of all time. Exactly. I'm actually the senior advisor for the high school, so I do, like, prom, graduation, all that stuff. I get so nervous when I have money in my hands. I count it in front of the students. I, like, go with somebody to, like, put the money in the locker. Like, I keep a ledger that I share with the principal and and the vice principal. I'm super paranoid. About anyone ever thinking that about me. I mean, but it is smart to do that, though. Yeah, because I want to protect myself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I don't want to be Robinson here. <laughs> True. And then we'd have to leave. We'd never, <laughs> I'd never work again. Can't show my face around here anymore. <laughs> John and Nancy Joe Robinson headed west to Kansas City in 1964, where many young professionals were going as the city and the rural areas around it were being rapidly built up. The couple chose to move to rural Johnson County, Kansas, which was just south of the city. Robinson immediately applied for a job as a pediatric x-ray technician at Children's Mercy and General Hospital. He lied and said that he had been accepted into medical school, 
and he needed the x-ray job as a nighttime job to help pay for medical school. First of all, he didn't even finish his x-ray technicianship. Whatever. So crazy. (laughs) He had three falsified medical technologist certificates, and seemingly being overqualified for the job, he got the position right away. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, the hospital was like, oh, we're lucky to get this guy. Let's check it off. Check yes. And they wouldn't even think to try to like even look into it at all. It's well, great. it doesn't really work that way. All they got to do is you read the letter in 1967. I know. Right? Right. You couldn't email someone, get a quick response. So those who worked with him said it was almost immediately apparent that he had no idea what he was doing. At first, they chalked it up to him like never working with children before. So they slowly tried to help teach him things and while he was learning this new craft at work nancy and john robinson so while he's being taught things at work nancy is going to help him welcome their first child into the world it's a boy now what do you think this narcissist is going to name his first son his name john jr right yeah although on the outside things seemed like the robinsons were getting a second chance at life basically this was not the case john robinson during this time is going to develop an affinity for seedy downtown bars in kansas city where he's going to meet many many women and he's going to carry on affairs with a few of them all at the same time those at the hospital soon found out about robinson's escapades we'll call them And everyone felt terrible for Nancy because they knew she was at home taking care of a newborn baby boy. And here he is having all these affairs. I mean, it's pretty shitty, but you know what? This guy is like a piece of shit so far. Yeah. So far. Yes. Yes. (laughs) You know. So, I mean, everyone at the hospital is kind of thinking this is like really strange because where is this guy finding the time? Because they think he's going to medical school. They think he has an infant son, and now he's having all these affairs, and he's working nights at the hospital. Right. It doesn't seem to ha- be enough time for all these actions, that he, uh, all right. these like activities that he's right. doing. Right. He doesn't have enough time in the <laughs> no. day. So he's they're kind of like starting to look a little bit closer at him. So the doctors at the hospital were starting to get upset with Robinson. Not only was his social life interrupting procedures at the hospital, but he had no clue what he was doing. And he had been written up several times before for taking bad images of patients or missing really important things. At first, they just thought, okay, maybe it's because he's never worked with children before. And of course, doing x-ray imaging for children is going to be a little bit more difficult than adults because it's hard for them to sit still. But it was showing over time that he was just so inexperienced and had no clue what he was doing. So he was fired from the hospital. Two jobs gone. And you would think at this point, he'd probably just try to give up, <laughs> you know? Oh, my God. He never gives up. <laughs> it's crazy. But this did not discourage Robinson at all. In fact, he figured if he couldn't work the x-rays, that maybe he should just oversee the entire x-ray department and never have to do an x-ray again. And that is just the job that he landed at Fountain Plaza X-Ray in April of 1966. He now worked under the ownership of the prestigious Dr. Wallace Graham, who had been the personal doctor of President Harry S. Truman. The doctor, a former Eagle Scout himself, was impressed by the vision that Robinson sold to him during the job interview. 
So again, he talked his way through the interview and now he's head of the x-ray department at this man's hospital. No one can step in that much crap through their lifetime except him. Yeah. Like, it's incredible. It really is. It is. It's fascinating. But again, obviously, this there was a time and place for a con artist like this. And in the 60s, it could happen. So now Robinson, unlicensed and inexperienced, was overseeing a whole laboratory. Dr. Graham's son recalled that while he was working a summer internship at 15 years old, he was creeped out by Robinson. He told the young boy about the many affairs he was having and the sex that he would have in public places and that he enjoyed watching the transgendered strippers in the Kansas City clubs. The 15-year-old boy never knew how to respond to all this talk about sex because he's 15 years old. You know what, though? I don't even think it's that. Well, it probably is. But... Well, it's bizarre talk about right, sex. Exactly. It's not like, like normal. No, it's not normal talk. It's like that's not something you just come out and just talk about. So, no. of course, for a 15-year-old, it'd be weird, too. At 15 years old, it's weird to talk to someone about being an exhibitionist. It's just strange. They're trust trying to me. figure out sex, period. Yeah. They don't right. even know exactly. about this extra but, stuff. Like, trust me on this. Like, construction workers, man. Like, when I was there with them and, you know, when I first got in, I just turned 18. And, like, even though I'm 18, it's, like, it's still weird to hear, like, a 40-year-old talk about, like, having sex. Yeah. It's weird as fuck. And that's exactly I why I can't I can exactly how this guy feels at 15. I get it. Because it's like. Like, dude, I'm doing my thing with my 18-year-old girls over here. I don't and you're need talking, to hear about yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to hear about you and your wife and all your weird shit. Like, there was people that would really do that all the time. Well, you never be that oh, person I don't. Oh, I do not do that. No, 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 no. <laughs> at this time, Nancy is going to give birth to the couple's second child, Kimberly. By all accounts, Nancy knew nothing of her husband's infidelities. It appeared that Robinson was an even better liar at home. Than he was at work. Dr. Graham was beginning to get tired of all of Robinson's actions, though. Not only did he know the young man was having multiple affairs on his wife, because he was telling his young son, but he was also trying to seduce female patients by telling them that his wife was terminally ill to gain their sympathy. What? That's so sad. It is. On top of that, he was beginning to rub people the wrong way at the office. Money? had also gone missing, and the bookkeepers within the practice could not come up with the reason why. All of the employees had to forego their Christmas bonus, but that isn't what made them upset. They were willing to forget about the bonus so no one would lose their job, but they couldn't stand the fact that Robinson would come into work and brag about everything that he was able to buy. He bought an expensive lakefront property, a new car for Nancy, and several dogs and horses. How was he affording all of this? It seemed extensive even for his salary. Well, six months later in June, the bookkeepers finally figured out what was going on. John Robinson had been embezzling money. $100,000 to be exact. $100,000 in 1967. That's a lot of money. Think about this for a second. Most cars in the 60s, you could buy them for like $3,000, $4,000. That's how much a car would cost. Right. That's a lot of money that he's just embezzled. Right. And the bookkeepers would later tell Dr. Graham that it was probably even more than $100,000 because what he was doing was he was telling patients after he saw them, 
don't go to billing, come to me. And he would say, I'll let you only pay half of the bill if you write your check directly out to me. But they'll never know the exact amount people wrote checks to him for. That's on top of the 100000 he stole. That's crazy. Yeah. Once again, testing the limits. You see, he wasn't just happy with taking the money from the business. But he, on top of that, he had to start asking actual patients for money. Right. See, that's that's the trend. That's what I want to, like, I kind of hit home, I feel like, is that he wants to just always test the like envelope. How much can he push it? Right. It's never enough for him. Right. Ever. When Robinson was confronted about this, he just simply said, I knew I would be caught eventually, but can I just pay it back? But Dr. Graham didn't want him to pay it back. He wanted to call the police. And in August of 1969, Robinson was convicted of embezzling $33,000 because that's the only amount of money they could prove from the fountain x-ray. Nancy was a character witness in court and she was described as being meek and soft-spoken. So not only did he put his wife through the embarrassment of this happening a second time, he's going to make her testify in court on his behalf. That's so like, that's just such a messed up thing to do. Robinson is going to receive a suspended sentence and was put on three years probation. At the age of 25, John Robinson had an intense criminal record. So clearly the medical world was not working out for John Robinson. So he chose to try his luck in the corporate world. Again, he forged references and talked his way into a job as a systems analyst at the Kansas City branch of Mobile Oil. Of course, he never told his employer about his probation. In September of 1970, he was caught stealing $372 worth of stamps. Eventually, he worked out a deal to pay it back, and he only received a misdemeanor for the offense. It's crazy that he only got a misdemeanor while being on probation for embezzling from a company and then he steals and doesn't get jail time. Like Just, that is a clear yeah. violation of probation. I would think so. Yeah. What's weird is that he stole stamps. Well, I think he was stealing more stuff, but that's what he got caught stealing. I know, but regardless. Well, think about it, now he's going to sell it for a profit. I get it. But that's, I guess that is his MO, but... You're stealing stamps. Like, come on, man. Yeah, but think about it back then. That's It seems seemingly meaningless to us now. There was no email. Everyone was mailing things. So now you can sell stamps. Like, I guess so. Yeah, everyone needed stamps. Form. That's true. Yeah, that's true. So it seemed like Kansas City was not working out too well for the Robinsons. So John made the decision to move his family back to Chicago. There, he became an insurance salesman. And this is pretty interesting because I think that this is a career that John truly excelled in um, without having to falsify any documents because he would be, as we can see, a master salesman. But, of course, he couldn't help himself. And again, he was caught embezzling $5,600. And again, Robinson was ordered to pay restitution and his three-year probation was extended. So a second time. He does again what he was given probation for, and probation is just simply extended. That's crazy because, I mean, I think that if he would have gotten some jail time, even a couple of months, that might have maybe stopped him from doing it again. Hey, we got know? There's got to be some consequences here. Yeah. So during those court proceedings, Nancy gave birth again, this time to a set of twins named Christopher and Christine. 
With a family of six now and a bunch of legal problems in Chicago, the Robinsons headed back to Kansas City. Once there, he opened a business of his own, and this seemed to be the solution to his problem. He liked to steal from businesses, and if he was the boss, he would never get caught. He chose to open a medical consulting company, and he hired a pretty 24-year-old secretary. Now I know what you're thinking. This is Robinson here, and he's never been loyal to Nancy. But that isn't why he chose to hire the beautiful 24-year-old's secretary. He hired her because she was pregnant and desperate for a job. So Robinson knew that if he paid her well, she would stick around and not open her mouth about the shady business dealings that he was into. It's pretty smart. Yeah. While running this company, he worked temporarily at the University of Kansas's Family Medical Center. But he was let go because, you guessed it, money went missing. But he still had the business, right? Wrong. He got in trouble around the same time for forging a document that was a promise of investment from a large laboratory. He sent it to possible investors asking them to get involved. The forgery of this letter led to four-count indictment for security and mail fraud. Robinson only received a fine of $2,500 and an additional three years added on to his probation and a warning from the SEC. His lawyer advised him to plead no contest so that he would never have to pay that money back. Unbelievable, right? Yeah. So lucky. Basically, within his company, what had happened was he wrote a fake letter saying that this big medical laboratory was going to invest and use his company. So other people would buy stock in. Oh, and then that company then in turn said, we have we know nothing about that. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. But a scheme like this, of course, we know is nothing new for John Robinson and nothing new for the justice system because, again, he committed a huge crime, no jail time. But the fact that Robinson had forged a letter from a large laboratory gained a lot of media attention. Now, this is bad because it made it hard for him to continue his cons because his name was now in the media. Robinson's solution to this problem was to reinvent himself. He moved his family to Stanley, Kansas. He chose a brand new home on three acres in a brand new rural development. Robinson, now 33 years old, slightly balding, made people in Stanley fall in love with him. They viewed him as a seemingly successful businessman who somehow had the time to be head of the local homeowners association, a scoutmaster, a t-ball coach, a volleyball referee, and an elder at the Presbyterian Church where he taught Sunday school. That's so awesome. If you Well, if you think about it like this, everything that he's doing, he has past experience and that's not fake. Right. You know, he, he did, wanted to be a priest. He did want to be a priest. He was an Eagle Scout. You know, like, finally, wow, he's actually, you know, being true to himself. He could. It's so funny because you're right. There are so many times, like, when he did the insurance sales stuff. And right now when he's taking on these roles that he does technically have an actual background in, he could go on the straight and narrow. But he, he chooses not to. And it's all a facade. Like, he's just doing these things so the people of Stanley, Kansas, are looking up to him as a leader of the community. Right. And what's 
also interesting here is that a lot of the roles that he takes in Stanley, Kansas, are the same roles in the community that we know BTK took in his community as well. Interesting. There's a lot of similarities between BTK and John Robinson, I believe, first with the fantasies that they develop over time, but also with their roles in the community and within their homes. And then what like what they portray to the world and what their private reality is. He's a little bit more careless with his actions than BTK was, but Robinson clearly can't help himself. Right. When asked about him, his neighbors say that everyone loved him. His family was perfect, and John Jr. especially worshipped him. But as we have learned, it's never enough for Robinson. He always takes it a little too far, which always results in him getting caught. And his image was no exception. Robinson wanted his image to be above and beyond all other men in the area. So, he invented an award, the Kansas City Man of the Year Award. He sent letters to the mayor and the senator asking them to speak at a luncheon in which was set up by him impersonating other people. He invited over 50 people, obviously from not himself, but from other people he was impersonating. And he even had the nerve when the luncheon actually happened to act surprised that he got the award. I mean, make an award for yourself and then win it. And then win <laughs> like it. Just, well, make an award. And Falsely then... invite yeah. 50 people. <laughs> and then win. And then win it. <laughs> and then act surprised when you win oh it. Oh, my gosh. But the jig was up when the local Kansas City newspaper printed a story about this amazing luncheon and the first ever Kansas City Man of the Year. People wrote in telling the editor that this was a fake award, that there was no such thing. Journalists being pissed off that they got duped, begin to investigate, and they found out the whole thing was planned by Robinson himself. The writers at the paper exposed the whole thing, including Robinson's criminal history. However, this didn't stop him from opening not just one, but two consulting firms. You gotta, like, sit back and think, like, how the hell does he always bounce back like this? And is able to do yeah. so. Yeah, no, it's true. It's like wheeler where you, and dealer. But where are you getting the money from, too? He like he just bought a brand new house. Well, he doesn't have to pay all the restitutions for things because he keeps pleading no contest. He only had to pay restitution the one time for fifty six hundred dollars. Right. And and he's smart in how much money he is taking and where he's putting it. Not smart enough because he's getting caught. Well, he's getting caught, but he still has leftover money. Right. Like, remember, he took $100,000, but they could only prove he took thirty-three. That's true. Yeah. So he opens these two consulting firms. The first he named Equa Plus, and the second he named Equa Two. He was continuing his scams, taking money from companies and not providing them with the services he promised, or getting shady loans for neighbors that would never come to fruition. However, because it's his business... He was able to get away with a lot. At home, the perfect persona he tried to create in Stanley slowly began falling apart. The two horses and dog that he brought home were taken away by the Humane Society. Neighbors reported that the horses and the dogs looked hungry and that they were always outside exposed to the elements. So the Humane Society took them away. Robinson also could be heard 
by the neighbors screaming at his kids and Nancy at all hours of the day and night. Some even claim to see Nancy with bruises, but she says nothing. In March of 1979, he got off of federal probation and got a job at a food store as their employee relations manager. Of course, they did not run a background check. While there, Robinson formed checks and stole thousands of dollars. He even created fake employees and had their paychecks go directly into his bank account. That's crazy, too. I mean, this guy, I mean, he's just finding really creative ways to make money and yes. to steal. It's crazy. He began an affair with the secretary at the food services store, and this secretary fell in love with him. And she helped him get away with all of his scams. But eventually, she wanted more than to just be his mistress. One day, she is going to give him an ultimatum. Either he leave Nancy or she was going to go to the police. Robinson did not want to leave his family. And I think it was because it would have caused so much complications and the child support he would have to pay and... I, I don't think this was an emotional decision. I think this was a monetary decision he made. And um, he doesn't leave Nancy. So the secretary does go to the police and tells on Robinson. When this was discovered, he was fired and charged with felony theft. In civil court, he was ordered to pay the company $50,000. That's a lot of money He's back then, slammed too. Here. Yeah. In criminal court, he was facing a Class C felony and was facing seven years in jail. However, he only received 60 days and five years probation. When he was arrested, Nancy filed for divorce. However, during counseling, Robinson convinced her to stay in the marriage, despite the fact that everyone in her life was begging her to leave, including her children. By then, the couple had been married for 16 years, and she didn't want to leave her husband. The 60-day jail sentence and probation was embarrassing for the family, and the kids were made fun of at school, especially John Jr., who was having a hard time as it is. John Jr. was described as, like, not really fitting in in school. And he had a rough time at school, a rough time at home. You just feel really, but your heart kind of goes out to that kid who could obviously never live up to the expectations of his demanding and abusive father. And then now was not socially fitting in at school. That's hard. It's also hard when you're when you're like being uprooted from what you know all these times i mean like think about it we've like he's moved like five times already back right. and forth so like how do you maintain normalcy when you're being uprooted every single time right and of course with the court system it's being reinforced to robinson over and over again that he can get away with murder and in the summer of 1984 he just might but before we get into his escalation, let's take a break to hear from our second sponsor. Paula Godfrey was a beautiful, athletic 19-year-old girl in the summer of 1984. Teachers at the high school she had just graduated from the year before described her as a good girl with a great sense of humor. At her high school, she was a cheerleader and on the honor roll for her last two years. She was the elder sister to a brother and sister and loved them both very much. However, her first love was ice skating, which she had been doing since she was five years old. She would practice both before and after school for years. While attending business classes, she tried out for her dream job at Walt Disney World on ice. 
However, when she tried out, she had the flu and she didn't perform her best. And she was encouraged to try out again the following year. And that's what she was going to do. She was going to try out again the following year. But in the meantime, she needed to get a job so she could save money. She saw an ad in the paper and called for an interview. When she came home from the interview, she told her mother that she had gotten the job and that her new boss, John Robinson, at Equa 2 Advertisement, was the nicest guy she's ever met. Weeks went by and things seemed to be going okay. Bill Godfrey, who hadn't even known his daughter was looking for a job, was becoming more comfortable with the idea that she had one. However, in late August, Paula approached her parents and let them know that Robinson had a great opportunity for her. He was going to fly her and other new female employees to attend a course on clerical skills in San Antonio, Texas. And with some apprehension, they agreed to let her go. On the morning of September 1, 1984, the 41-year-old Robinson picked up 19-year-old Paula Godfrey. He was supposed to be taking her to the Kansas City airport. The Godfreys didn't know it, but that was the last time they would ever see their daughter. They knew something was wrong right away when Paula failed to call them when she landed or the four subsequent days later. They were a close family, and this was the first time she had been away from home. She would have called, either them or for her siblings. After those days passed, Bill Godfrey made the decision to get on a plane and go to San Antonio himself. When he got there, he learned that his daughter had never checked into the hotel that she was supposed to be staying at. When Godfrey got back to Kansas City, he filed a missing persons report and went to Robinson's office to confront him. He threatened the man that had driven away with his daughter that if he didn't hear from his daughter within three days, he'd regret it. Which I think is kind of a weird threat but I guess he's holding out hope that his daughter's alive. Right. I don't think that, uh, you know, he's assuming the worst yet. Yeah. Two days after this threat, a letter mysteriously gets delivered to the Godfrey home. It is a letter from Paula. In this letter, she told her family to stop looking for her, that she was fine. They didn't believe it, though. This was so out of character for Paula, so they brought the letter to the police department handling their daughter's case the Overland Park Police Department, because that's where Equa 2 is located. So it wasn't her local police department handling the case. It was the police department of the business that she went on the trip with. But this is so out of character. And I know that families always say that, but this girl had goals, dreams to, you know, try out again for the Disney on Ice. And she had never left home before. She had a very close-knit family. She loved her parents and siblings. This isn't someone at risk for a runaway right not to mention the family saw her leave with her boss and that's the last known person right so when the family goes to the police department with the letter the police there interestingly enough had a letter as well the letter they received from paula told them that she was okay and she was now living in western kansas she also credited robinson with helping her she concluded by saying that she no longer had any interest in seeing her family. Now, despite the fact that the letter had Kansas City postage stamps on them and the fact that Paula wouldn't know what police department would be handling her case, the Overland Park Police Department or hers from her hometown, 
the department stopped their investigation and said there was no evidence of wrong wrongdoing. This girl was just trying to start a new life. So they completely ignore the stamp and the fact that she wouldn't know who to contact. I don't even know how this could just be overlooked. Yeah. Because I think with any case, with any missing persons, period, the last known person to know her whereabouts would be at least questioned. Right. I don't know how you don't do that. What's crazy is that there is no even initial search into the records of the company. Nothing is looked at here. It's okay. We got a letter, which they can't even verify. And they're just saying that that's it. Investigation over. It's pretty crazy. As time went on, the Godfreys were tortured by the fact that they did not know what had happened to their daughter. However, they had other children to focus on, and they needed to make sure that they could keep them safe. Oddly enough, another letter from Paula was found addressed to John Robinson. When this was shown to the family, they said in no way could this be written from their daughter. In the letter, she's swearing and she has a lot of things like misspelled. But she never swore and she wouldn't write that way. In this letter, she was claiming that she had stolen a car and money from John and someone named Ralph who had treated her poorly. At the end, she said she was going far, far away. And she named several cities, but said she hadn't decided in which one she was going to yet. The family, when confronted, when shown it years, years later, they said this, of course, they believed as well, did not belong to their daughter. The letter was found by a business partner of Robinson's, who was working with the Secret Service, who were building a federal case against him for check forgery that we'll get into in the second episode. So it's kind of like a fast forward. So what's interesting enough is that this partner who's working with him at Equa 2 is later going to turn on him and testify against him because he does he wants to escape jail time for cashing a federal check that wasn't theirs to cash. So he had seen this letter that Robinson, I guess, was typing to say it was from Paula eventually, and he had stolen it from Robinson. And kept it himself as collateral if anything ever happened. Interesting. Yes. This letter comes out 15 years after her disappearance when that man passes away and his safe deposit box is checked. The letter was in the safe deposit box. It's a good place to put it. Yeah. (laughs) So shortly after Paula Godfrey went missing, Robinson bought a duplex in downtown Kansas City under Equitu's name. He asked an experienced prostitute to help him use it as a brothel. He would go out and find girls to come and live in the duplex where they would service his customers. But the brothel would become so much more to Robinson. For years, through various affairs, he had been dabbling in the world of sadomasochism. He knew how much money he spent on it and he knew that it would be lucrative. He turned the duplex into a BDSM club, and it gained its popularity through word of mouth and underground sex magazines. He employed girls who were willing sex slaves. Robinson used his new money-making business as his own private playground. He enjoyed being a dominant partner in an SM relationship, but those that he chose to partner with 
talked of his unusual lust for torture and domination. They said he often took things way too far. So it obviously leaves the world of a consensual SM relationship, which I learned from Mindhunter. You don't say SNM, you say SM. Right. Because it's not sadomasochism, it's sadomasochism. Mindhunter, just teaching me so much stuff. It's true. Fun facts. Yes, but the girls that he, I don't want to say kept, I mean, they were prostitutes. After a while, they became kept women. They weren't allowed to leave, but they were forced to participate in these SM sexual relationships with, I guess, paying clients. They didn't see the money, really. Robinson saw most of the money. But they, it wasn't a consensual BDSM relationship because there was no concern or care for the other partner. It was these men were allowed to do whatever they wanted to these women, and the women could never say no. So that's not what an, an SM relationship is. Do you know what I mean? Right, exactly. No, I get it. This is sexual assault. Pretty much. <laughs> As the years went on at the club, Robinson found a group of men who shared in his feelings and beliefs. Together, they formed a secretive BDSM cult that they called the International Council of Masters. I just want everyone to know, like, I throw up in my mouth saying that out loud. <laughs> yeah, it's that's it's, it's just, so yeah. ridiculous. Well, they just think so much of themselves, you know, like he birds of a feather, right? Flock together and he found his crew, I guess. Yep. Robinson's employees. One of Robinson's employees. um, is going to write up a history of the cult to recruit new members. So this history isn't true, but it's like fabricated to make them sound really cool. So the history, completely fabricated, talked of six professional men meeting in a basement warehouse in London on Friday, May 13th, 1921. They were described as dominant men who maintained females as their personal servants. These men were bound by a code of silence. The cult began as the members wore purple robes and their slaves had silver, like their slaves were kept in silver cuffs like next to them. They each chose a piece of equipment to use on their slave to train them. The history then goes on to say that it grew over the years, having dungeons from coast to coast and spreading to America. And this is why in August of 1983, its name was changed to the International Council of Masters, obviously to keep up with their global status, you know? Ridiculous. <laughs> but only men who are into that would buy into that whole history thing. And I'm making a joke of it because I'm not talking about people who participate or are into, like, what really truly is a BDSM, whatever lifestyle that they want to live. Like these are men who want to not equally participate with somebody. They want to just basically have someone to sexually abuse it's also, and keep as well, a sex slave. Yeah. Like those are two yeah. different things. I don't want our listeners or anyone out there to be uninformed in thinking that keeping someone chained to a bed as a sex slave is the same thing as a BDSM partnership they're two completely different things right like you yeah. want to be a sexual predator you don't want to participate in that well it's That's also just what you're calling right it. it's also the type of people that they are getting by 
coming out with this history, um, you know, it's like trying to add like mystique and like mm-hmm. this crazy like underworld. It's men who want to be more important than they really are, right? By saying they're involved in this international council of masters. Well, <laughs> the truth, obviously, behind this coal is nothing like the bizarre lie we just read to you. It is, in fact, a group of disgusting men who would meet in the basement of a brothel, Robinson's brothel, and he would bring different women each time. And that woman would either be beaten, raped, tortured, or any combination of the three. These were usually new members of the club, women that Robinson had just brought in. And he said that this was a way that he broke them down and broke them in. One former member said that the abuse got so bad in the basement that she had tried to escape. Now, see, again, that's not a SM relationship. If someone's trying to escape, that is sexual assault. That is what's happening. And when she tried to escape because she was being sexually mutilated by the group, um, she was brought back in, heavily drugged, and the abuse continued. Um, That same girl said that Robinson would always bring three girls into the meeting of all these men in chains. Like he would bring them in like in like following behind him on their hands and knees on chains and that they would be heavily, heavily drugged. So she said, of course, there is no consent when someone's so drugged like this. They didn't even know where they were. They were so intoxicated. Yeah, that's there's there's no way to have (laughs) consent at all. Yeah. So although, I mean, that's absolutely disgusting. And you think about the abuse and torture and sexual assault that was happening in the basement of that brothel by not just Robinson, but other men as well. It's horrific. And although it would seem like Robinson would have to put all of his attention onto his new club, he wasn't. He was a multitasker. There was a scheme that he had been working on since the summer of 1983 that he had to deliver on really soon as the Christmas of 1984 was approaching and that was his due date. Back in the summer of 1983, a year before Paula Godfrey began working for Robinson, the man and his family had been at a family reunion in Stanley, Kansas. His brother, Donald Robinson, and his wife, Helen, had been trying to adopt privately through the Catholic Church as they were having trouble conceiving. They were telling Robinson that it was so expensive and it was such a long process. Robinson told the desperate couple, his brother and sister-in-law, not to worry. He said that he knew people who specialized in adoption and promised them that he would talk to his friends and find them the baby they were looking for. And it was in May of 1984 that he called his brother and told him that he had a baby for him and his wife. All they had to do was send a check to Equa 2 for $2,500. His brother was concerned about the legality of the process, but Robinson convinced him that all the proper paperwork would be given to him. He informed the ecstatic couple that their new baby would be born in October. However, October came and went, and the room that the couple set up with a crib and baby clothes stayed vacant. When they asked Robinson about when the baby would be coming, he told them that the baby was born, but that there were problems with paperwork. They just had to hang tight. 
However, because the paperwork was taking longer than expected, the lawyers would need to be paid more. So another $3,000 would have to be sent to Equa 2 to cover the cost. Excited for the chance to be parents, they agreed to pay. So just how was Robinson going to get a baby? He was going to scheme away. First, he tried to approach a local charity that helped young mothers before and after they gave birth. He said he was working with the church and that he wanted to board a young white mother and newborn son. However, after the director became suspicious and started asking questions, he got nervous. Then she told Robinson that the young mother they were talking to had a history with drugs and mental illness, and he was out of there. He then turned to the Truman Medical Center in Kansas, where he charmed all the right people into connecting him with a white 19-year-old mother with a beautiful four-month-old baby girl who had been staying at a battered women's shelter. Her name was Lisa Stasi, and she was absolutely breathtaking. She had been born in April of 1965 in Alabama. In her short time on this earth, she had many difficult times. Her father died when she was young, and for several reasons, she decided to leave school before graduating from high school. But when she did that, she didn't just leave school. She left the state. Lisa was going to start over fresh in Kansas City. Lisa wanted to find friends in her new city. So what way better to do that than to visit the bar closest to where she was staying? With her beautiful smile and sweet disposition, Lisa found a regular crew at the bar that she easily fell into. It was within that group that she met her future husband, Carl Stasi, a sailor. The young couple became pregnant, and Carl asked Lisa to marry him. The couple married in August, and Lisa gave birth in September to a girl that she chose to name Tiffany Lynn. However, the relationship turned violent within one month of Lisa giving birth. While Stasi was away on assignment with the Navy, Lisa chose to move her and Tiffany's things out and sought protection at a local women's shelter. While there, she was trying to plan her next move. She needed to have a job first before her and Tiffany moved anywhere permanently. Luckily, though, she did have support from her abusive husband's mother and sister, trying to help her get on her feet. It seemed like her big break came four months into her staying at the shelter. She was approached by one of the social workers through the Truman Hospital. She told Lisa that there was a philanthropist who was willing to take in both her and Tiffany for free. On top of that, they were going to get her a job and training in Dallas, Texas, so she would eventually be able to support herself and her daughter. Now this could change her life. She was in. Lisa was told that she was going to be picked up at her sister-in-law's house by a man who was financing this opportunity for her. His name was John Osborne, but John Osborne was really John Robinson. Yeah, like really, he really switched it up there. Just changed his last name. (laughs) When he arrived to pick up Lisa and her daughter Tiffany, there was a raging blizzard going on. Lisa had to leave with Robinson so quickly that she had to leave most of her goods behind. 
So she promised her sister-in-law that she would be back within the week to pick up the bulk of her things. She only had time to bring one bag and Tiffany's diaper bag. As Lisa said quick goodbyes to her sister and brother-in-law, they also had no clue, much like the Godfreys did. That would be the last time Lisa was ever seen. Lisa and Tiffany were checked into the Roadway Inn in Overland Park, Kansas by John Robinson, who was still using the name John Osborne. He had used his Equitu business credit card. Because of the blizzard outside, the unusual threesome could not venture out to get food, but rather they were stuck in the hotel room eating food from a vending machine. But this did not seem to bother Robinson at all. He spent his time alone with a young mother, grilling her. He asked her every question he could think of, learning so much about her past and her present, information he would use again later. Lisa answered all of the questions that Robinson had for her, but something, somewhere, had to have gone wrong. We know this because of a distressing phone call that was placed from Lisa to her mother-in-law. During the call, Lisa was hysterically yelling. She was asking why Carl was seeking a divorce from her when he was the one who had been torturing her. She then added that she didn't appreciate that her, her, her mother-in-law, was trying to gain custody of Tiffany. So obviously Robinson was like lying, saying Carl's getting a divorce, your mother-in-law's trying to take Tiffany. So he was trying to like plant a seed there. Right, just to cause conflict. But I, he didn't think that she would call them, but she did. So Lisa began yelling to her mother-in-law, you'll never be able to take her away from me. I made sure of that. I signed four black pieces of paper for them. She never got to clarify who they were because the call abruptly ended with Lisa saying, they're here. I can't talk. So was there more than one person there? That's interesting. Yeah, it is pretty interesting. Mm. It could have been his business partner who was involved in a lot of his shady transactions that we'll learn about later, the one who turned on him for the Secret Service. Um, could have been one of the men from the club, like his cult thing. We don't know. That's true, yeah. So, but she did say she signed th- four pieces of black paper for them, which I assume is signing over rights of Tiffany. Yeah, that's what I would... Because they're talking about custody. Yeah, that's what I would think, too. The following day, Lisa checked out of the hotel and was never seen by anyone she loved again. The very next morning, John Robinson arrived at the airport to pick up his brother, Donald, and his sister-in-law, Helen. They were flying in from Chicago. They immediately traveled to Robinson's offices at Equitoo. There, they signed the many official-looking documents that they believed were going to confirm the adoption of their new baby. Once the paperwork was signed and Robinson checked that all 5,500 had cleared, he told them they were all set. Donald and Helen were told that the baby's mother had been living with her. Donald and Helen were told that the baby's mother had been living with her in a hotel room in Kansas. However, the pressures of life and being a young mother got to her and that she had committed suicide just a few days before. Now, this would be a red flag to me because if this adoption had been active since August the following year, that's months and months and months. So now you're telling me I'm only getting this baby because the mother just committed suicide. 
Well, I would I would think that if she committed suicide, that that baby wouldn't go into another family. It would go to the next of kin or or like the the mother in law or the sister. Right. So It'd go to somebody. Well, obviously Robinson is spewing his thing, but they they were supposed to have this baby secured from August. So obviously there was no next of kin. The adoption was supposed to take place. I see what you're saying. But okay. for the him to then say the baby was finally given into their custody because of the mother's suicide doesn't make sense. No, not at all. But the couple was deeply saddened by this news. And it just gave them all the more resolve to provide a wonderful life for their new daughter. The three drove to Robinson's house where they were greeted by Nancy, who was holding what Donald and Helen had been waiting for for years. Her mother named her Tiffany Lynn, Robinson told his brother and sister-in-law. Helen replied that she wanted to name her Heather Elise, but if that's what her mother wanted, they didn't want to take that away from her, so they chose to call her Heather Tiffany. The following day, Donald and Helen left with baby Heather, not knowing the sacrifices that were made for their happiness. See, that's sad. Everything that this guy does just destroys everybody. And it's so crazy how they don't even know. And this is his own family, too. His own family. And even if he thinks in the back of his sick, twisted mind that he's doing something right here, which 100% he is not, the devastation that he's going to cause later on in that family, once the truth is learned, because it does get learned, where Heather truly came from, you've now just annihilated a family emotionally. Yep. That's true. Six days after Lisa said goodbye to her in-laws and got into the car with John Robinson, and one day after baby Heather left for Chicago, the social worker that had placed Lisa with Robinson now placed a missing persons report with the Overland Park Police Station. Do you think the Overland Park Police Station would be like, huh, it's weird that all these missing people disappear and this one guy's always involved? The last to know know the whereabouts. Yeah. I mean, granted, though, the second time he used a different last name. Yes, he did use Osborne. But again, it gets very quickly brought into him because he used his company's name, Equitu. Right. So if Godfrey went missing from Equitu and now Lisa Stasi did, it's come true. on, guys. That's true. <laughs> but I will say, though, this is the longest business that he hasn't gotten in trouble yeah, with he's yet. he's doing pretty solid. Yeah, finally. So she explained what can only be described as a bizarre situation with Mr. Osborne. She told police about the abrupt pickup, the distressed phone call, and now the radio silence. The police did file a missing persons report, but the social worker got disappointed at the end because he said, Lisa has a troubled past and a baby at a really young age. She's also an adult. Maybe she just ran away again like she did when she ran from Alabama to Kansas City. And that's unfortunate. The social worker returned to her office. Something was really bothering her about this situation, and she felt like it was all of her fault. So she called her husband, who was home that day, and asked him if he could help her. He already knew about Lisa's situation, and when she went missing, he agreed to go to the office where the philanthropist worked, Equa too. When he got to the office, he was told that he could not see Mr. Osborne, as he was very busy. He was then basically pushed out of the building by an unknown man, the business associate who later turned on Robinson. But before he could leave, he made sure that the man knew 
that they better hear from Lisa or it was all going to fall down on him. A few days after that visit, a phone call comes in to the social worker from a man named Father Martin with the City Union Mission, which is located in Kansas City. She was not there to pick up the phone, so he left a message for her. He told her that Lisa and Tiffany were staying there, and he left a phone number that he could be contacted at. When the social worker got the message, she immediately called the number, but no one at that number knew of Father Martin. She then tried to call City Union Mission, but they let her know that they didn't have any priests working for her at the shelter. You know, I think that that was a poor attempt into cover up what was going on. Oh, yeah. But I think it was even more, finally, somebody looking into the shady dealings of what's going on. Right, like someone's finally calling like, him. Right, exactly. Someone's calling him out on his bullshit. So this is like the first time that there's a follow-up to whatever he's trying to hide. Right. They thought they would just let that go. Right. And accept that message and end it. The following day, a letter arrived at the desk of another social worker who was also working with Lisa Stasi and the other social worker we were discussing. Robinson had convinced them both that placing Lisa with him would be safe. This was a letter from Lisa. It stated that she wanted the social workers to know that she appreciated everything that was done for her while she was there. Most of all, she appreciates the shelter placing her in this program because it has really helped her and given her a fresh start. She explained that she left because she was feeling a lot of pressure from her husband's family and from her own family. Her brother had wanted her to move back to Alabama to take care of a sick aunt, and that wasn't what she wanted to do. Now, this was very strange to the two social workers. The letter itself didn't sound like Lisa at all. She wouldn't just up and leave like that. They had developed a plan for her, and she was really happy with the plan. They also knew that Lisa was not able to write that well, as she had barely graduated high school. But on the other hand, they knew of Lisa's concerns about her brother pressuring her to move back home to take care of her sick aunt. How would someone know such a personal detail about her life? Not knowing what to do, they gave this letter to police, who unfortunately felt like this letter solved it for them. She had just simply left. But he knew that information. Robinson knew that because he was grilling her in the hotel room. Exactly. But see, it goes into these people don't think that someone's going to get to know someone and then in make that them disappear. Short amount of time. Right. Right. The day after the social workers received a letter, Lisa's mother-in-law did as well. In this letter, Lisa got into more detail. She talked about how she was unable to pay her car loan bill. And she knew it was backed up for several months. She had left the car at her sister-in-law's when Osborne came to pick her up. She told them to just return it because she couldn't continue to make payments. However, before they return it, she suggested that her brother-in-law force the trunk open because there were some important papers in the back. But she hadn't been able to open the trunk since she had been rear-ended in an accident a few weeks before. Again, she told him that she just wanted to leave because she was beginning to feel a lot of pressure from her brother. The same as the social workers, Lisa's mother-in-law said the details were correct, but the writing was off. Again, the details about the accident. Lisa would never talk this way. Plus, she doesn't know how to write that well. 
Also, the letter was typed, and they doubted very much that Lisa could type, let alone be somewhere where she had a typewriter. In his last attempt to cover his tracks with the social workers and Lisa's family, Robinson, pretending to be Osborne, called the shelter where Lisa had been staying. He didn't get to talk to the two social workers handling Lisa's case, just the manager of the overall shelter. He was irate on the phone. He stated that Lisa had checked herself out of the hotel with Tiffany because she had met some guy named Bill and that she had told him that she was not doing the program and she was leaving with Bill for Denver, Colorado to start a life with this new guy. He was screaming that he had invested so much money and time and this was horrible how badly he was taken advantage of and he refused to ever work with the shelter again. So now at this point, Robinson most likely had committed two murders, conjured up numerous fraudulent schemes, was running a dangerous and disgusting prostitution ring where women were getting sexually assaulted on a nightly basis. And not to mention he is involved in human trafficking now because of the false adoption. And this whole time he's on probation. What's so crazy about all this is the fact that nobody can figure this out. You know? No. I mean, I Nobody's understand. communicating about this. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I always try to get myself in the mind of the time. It's hard. You know, it really is because we weren't obviously like around <laughs> during this time. But I mean, if you really think about it. No, we're it, now into the 80s. Well, maybe for you. No, I'm saying oh, this is. Mean? Like, the crimes are taking place in the 80s. No, 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 I know that. But what I'm saying is even in the 80s, they, these things can still be done. But there's such a history. There's a history that's, that now goes back 20 years of fraudulent scams, doing things on probation that he did to get him on probation to missing women. Like, there is no way, no matter what time period it is, He's got more red flags than China. It's nuts. What I don't understand is how wouldn't he be on some sort of watch list because of the fact that he's been on probation for like six or seven years? Well, what's really interesting that you say that is that that's what starts to happen. People start to see these flags come up under his name and the walls slowly begin to start closing in on him. And... The Secret Service is going to be looking in at him because of a check being cashed. The FBI is looking at um, human trafficking. And then now all of a sudden, now his probation officer is realizing he's doing scams and think he's involved in a prostitution ring. So now all these people are going to be investigating him. And once they all come together, that's when charges are brought. But that is going to happen in the next episode. But we're going to see that even though charges are brought against him and he's awaiting trial, women are still going to go missing. It's it's just I it's mind boggling. It's my mind is exploding I know. at the fact that this guy just was able to do so many things and just nothing. With it all. Just fresh start. Fresh start. Just no big deal. I know. Crazy. I know. Well, next weekend, we're going to be coming back at you with a part two so you'll be able to hear the conclusion of the story of john edward robinson next weekend all right bye guys bye guys